Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number three, Esther chapter two. The reason that I chose to present you with the book of Esther is its historical and its chronological position in Israel's history. It bridges the exile to Babylon with their return to Judah and then the rebuilding of the temple that we find becoming fruitful in Ezra and uh, Nehemiah's time. So today, some of what we'll do is to add some details and paint with a, a little finer brush as we seek to understand the era in the context of the story. Now, chapter 1 set the stage for our story of Esther. It takes place in Susa, Shushan in Hebrew, which is the administrative capital of the Persian Empire. The king at this time was Xerxes, the fourth king of the media Persian Empire. He was called Ahasuerus in Hebrew and Ahasuerus in Persian. It's about 480 B.C., And the king is now in his third year of power after taking over from his father, Darius I. The Babylonian Empire had been conquered about 50 years earlier. Now the Persians were in control of everything that had formerly been Babylonian territory. The Jews were no longer in exile and they hadn't been for a few decades. The first king of Cyrus, uh, of Persia, rather, Cyrus the Great, well, he had emancipated his captive Jews, and several thousand had gone home to Judah. But if we were to attach a percentage, perhaps those Jews who left Persia would amount to no more than 10%, probably closer to 5%. That is, 90 to 95% of the Jews who had been living in the Babylonian Empire, first against their wills, and then in the past 50 years in the Persian Empire, had by their own choice decided not to return to the Holy Land. Why is that? It's because for a great many of them, Babylon and now Persia was home. When Persia conquered Babylon, most Jews weren't relocated. Babylon just became Persia. The cities and the towns they lived in merely had a change of government administration. A million or more Jews were born there. It's the only culture they ever knew. Other Jews had perhaps been children when they were hauled up from Judah by their conquerors in around around 586 B.C., but now a full century and a bit more had passed since that time, and all but a handful of that generation of deported Jews were dead and buried in their place of exile. The Jews had assimilated. Now they were in harmony with their surroundings. They were generally at peace with the Persians and the Medes and scores of other ethnic cultures that formed the empire. They were treated well in Babylon. 
some of their ranks even rising to the highest government offices as we found out in the book of Daniel. Daniel even served the first king of Persia for a short time. Towards the end of their stay in Babylon, things got a bit worse. And of course, they were never free to go home. So one of the first edicts of King Cyrus was to declare that the Jews were free. And he even aided their return using Persian treasury money. The modern name for the millions of Jews who chose and still choose to make their lives outside of the Holy Lands is diaspora Jews. Diaspora is a Greek loan word. It means scattered or dispersed. There was another reason that so many of these Jews elected to stay in Persia and it was because Judah was a disaster area. The main city of Jerusalem had its defensive walls torn down. The temple was a shambles. There was practically no working economy. What would the returnees do for a living? Where would they live? Tents and temporary shelter didn't look very attractive compared to the well-ordered mud-brick homes and organized towns and villages where they lived in Persia. But just as important an issue was how they might defend themselves from bandits, from petty lords and kings who wanted to take Jerusalem from them. How would they do this if there was no walls around the city? In 2014, about one half of the world's Jews live in Israel. The remainder live scattered throughout the rest of the world. The USA easily has the biggest concentration of Jews outside of Israel. So why, since Israel has been restored to a modern, vibrant nation, and it is their natural homeland, why, what with anti-Semitism on the rise, admittedly mostly outside the USA, why aren't the skies full of airplanes? taking the Jews back home. Because Israel hasn't been their home for almost 2,000 years. Because most feel no attachment to Israel. The Jews of today, other than the most orthodox and the most zealous, don't make religious connection to Israel. Most don't sense a spiritual bond. They don't see a biblical imperative to uproot their families and move even though they're welcomed there with open arms. They don't speak or wish to learn Israel's native language, Hebrew. Everything I just told you applied equally to the Jews of the Persian Empire 2,500 years ago. And so they made the same kinds of decisions for the same reasons. And those decisions were to stay put and not go back to Judah. Now, the only reason Israel really exists today as it does is the result of a horrific irony. The Jews were forced back to their ancient homeland, such as it was, as a result of the Holocaust of World War II. The nations of the world didn't want to take them in. 
And many Jews couldn't imagine themselves trying to rebuild their shattered lives in the same place where their next door neighbors sang Christian songs and called them Christ killers as they turned them over to government authorities for a one-way trip to the many death camps in, in Europe. Their family heritage was where they are now. And it had been that way sometimes for centuries. And because especially USA Jews enjoy the fruits of a free country, the richest in the world, a nation who seems to avoid attack from foreign powers, and they have a generally easy life, they enjoy it here. Here they don't worry about rocket and mortar attacks from a hostile neighbor bent on their annihilation that's located just a couple of miles away. They don't deal with $9 per gallon gasoline. 100% sales tax on a new car. Here, where a 2,000 square foot home's rather average, there only the wealthiest could afford such a thing. They don't make Aliyah to Israel because they choose not to. They don't see any advantage, but they see every risk in doing so. Israel is a foreign land in every sense of the word to the modern diaspora Jews as it was to the Jews of our story of Esther. Now we've learned some things about the Persian way of life especially about the ruling class. First, they like to party and drink. Almost all of the first chapter of Esther is about lavish banquets, intoxication, and how men and women are greatly separated so that the men can be drunk and disorderly, but the women can stay cloistered and their purity and their honor maintained. It's not that wives and girlfriends didn't go to banquets or festivities with their husbands or weren't allowed to go to public events. It's when the purpose of the get-together was to get very merry very fast. That's when they were prohibited from joining in. Second, we learned that the Persian royalty enjoyed finding every way possible to spend their vast wealth on decadent indulgences. Whereas today we'd be horrified to learn that our president or prime minister made serious national decisions while in a state of near of a near alcohol induced incoherence, then it wasn't all that unusual. Third, we learn that politics hasn't changed much over the centuries. Spin, protecting the leader's credibility at all costs, that was always paramount. No matter how silly, how not believable of a reason for some head-scratching action was given, some of the population would always accept it. And the leaders, advisors themselves saw and see inventing these reasons as perhaps their most important function. Thus, in Esther chapter 1, we find the inebriated and bombastic King Xerxes boast of the beauty of his wife, Queen Vashti. And so he ordered her to do something she couldn't possibly do and maintain her honor and her respect. 
appear before a group of drunken high government officials, all males of course, to be shown off and ogled like the centerfold of a Playboy magazine. She had little choice but to refuse and then to accept the consequences because the alternative was too awful and long-lasting to contemplate. When the king was told she wouldn't come, he became furious, no doubt due mostly to his embarrassment in front of these men. After all, he was the king of the world. A mere woman told him no? He didn't like no. So he called his closest, his wisest advisor together to decide what to do about this. They perfectly understood what their real job was. To make the king look good. To put the blame for this mess somewhere, anywhere, but at his feet. So the solution was they would turn this from a personal issue of face-saving to one of grave national importance. The spin would be that Queen Vashti's refusal was indicative of a growing rebellious attitude of wives in general. Something needed to be done about it before the entire social fabric of Persia would tear. Thus, as heartbreaking as it would be to the king to have to take this harsh action, he would essentially remove Queen Vashti's crown from her, kick her out of the royal harem, and send her away. But of course, this would be presented as a most regrettable action. It was taken for the sake of the collective good, for, for family harmony. Thus a new law was enacted. It was sent to all 127 districts of the Persian Empire, written in the scores of languages of the empire, and it was that wives were to show respect for their husbands, and that when in a situation of a multi-ethnic marriage, which was very common, there was to be only one culture respected, one language spoken in that household, that of the husband. Let's read Esther chapter 2 together. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, it is page 1090. Esther chapter 2. A while later, when King Ahasuerus' anger had subsided, he remembered Vashti, what she had done and what he had, what had been decreed against her. The king's servants attending him said, A search should be made for a young, good-looking, uh, young, good-looking virgin, uh, virgins. The king should appoint officials in all the provinces of the kingdom to gather all the young, good-looking virgins to the house for the harem in Shushan, the capital. They should be put under the care of Haggai, the king's officer in charge of the women, and he should give them the cosmetics they require. Then the girl who seems best to the king should become queen instead of Vashti. This proposal pleased the king, so he acted accordingly. 
There was in Shushan, the capital, a man who was a Jew, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Yair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjamite. He had been exiled from Jerusalem with the captives, exiled with uh, Yekanya, king of Jeconiah, the king of uh, Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babel, had carried off. He had raised Hadassah, that is Esther, his uncle's daughter, because she had neither father nor mother. The girl was shapely, good-looking, and after her father's and mother's death, Mordecai had adopted her as his own daughter. When the king's order and decree were proclaimed, and many girls assembled in Shushan, the capital, under the care of Haggai, Esther too was taken into the king's house and put under the care of Haggai, who was in charge of the women. The girl pleased him and won his favor, so that he lost no time in giving her her cosmetics, her portions of special food, and seven girls from the king's palace to attend to her. He also promoted her and the girls attending to her to the best place in the harem's quarters. Esther did not disclose her people or her family ties because Mordecai had instructed her not to tell anyone. Every day Mordecai would walk around in front of the courtyard of the harem's house in order to know how Esther was doing, what was happening to her. Each girl had her turn to appear before King Ahasuerus after she had undergone the full 12-month preparation period prescribed for the women, consisting of a six-month treatment with oil of myrrh and six months with perfumes and other cosmetics for women. Then when the girl went to see the king, whatever she wanted would be given to her as she went from the harem's house to the king's palace. She would go in the evening, and on the following day she would return to another part of the harem's house and be under the care of Shah Ashkaz, the king's officer in charge of the concubines. She would not go to the king again unless he was especially pleased with her and, he, and had summoned her by name. When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abichail, and when Mordecai had adopted uh, whom Mordecai had adopted as his own daughter <clears throat> to appear before the king, she didn't ask for anything other than what Haggai, the king's officer in charge of the harem, advised. Yet Esther was admired by all who saw her. She was brought to King Ahasuerosh in his royal palace in the tenth month, Tevet, during the seventh year of his reign. The king liked Esther more than any of his wives. None of the other virgins obtained such favor and approval from him. So he put the royal crown on her head and made her queen in place of Vashti. The king then gave a great banquet in Esther's honor for all of his officers and servants, decreed a holiday for all the provinces, and distributed gifts worthy of royal bounty. When the girls would gather on other occasions, Mordecai would sit at the king's gate. Esther had not yet revealed her family ties or her people, as Mordecai had ordered her. For Esther continued obeying what Mordecai told her to do, as she had when he was raising her. On one of those occasions, when Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, two of the king's officers, Bigton and Toresh, from the group in charge of the private entryways, they became angry and they conspired to assassinate King Ahasuerus. But Mordecai learned about it, told Esther the queen. Esther reported it to the king, crediting Mordecai. The matter was investigated, found to be true. Both were hanged on a stake. 
All of this was recorded in the daily journal that was kept with the king. The first words of this chapter are Ahar HaDebarim This means after these things. This is a standard Hebrew grammatical way of providing a break in subject and usually a changing of the scene. It means that some undefined amount of time had passed and unless there is some indication in the context about the amount of time, there's just no way outside of speculation to know. So in our case, after what things? Now remember, just because at some point the completed Bible was broken up into chapters and into verses doesn't mean it was intended to be or created to be that way. So we have to connect this first verse of chapter 2 with the last verse of chapter 1. And so what happens in chapter 2 takes place after the law against women disrespecting their husbands and the divorcing of Queen Vashti had taken place. The words that the king had remembered Vashti is an expression of regret. He was uneasy over what had transpired. And since he he expressed this regret out loud to his royal court, they fully understand this was their cue to find a solution. But underlying their concern was it was they who had recommended that the king put Vashti away. But even more that it had been done not discreetly but rather by means of a law that was made known from one end of the empire to the other. So by Persian custom, there was no way the king could undo the damage and get his wife back. So the royal court needed to come up with something quick so that the king wouldn't start to get angry at them. Because with the passage of time, all this has now started to cause him some discomfort. The solution... Get him a new wife. One even more beautiful than Vashti. Now although we really don't know anything about Vashti, nothing has ever been found in any Persian records about her, Herodotus says that Persia had seven royal aristocratic families who essentially controlled the nation. And the records reveal that a wife for the king was always chosen from one of these seven families. So, what the king's advisors proposed was far riskier than what it sounds like in these verses. They proposed that the king ignore this custom, this political imperative, and he go outside of these seven royal families and that the choice of the new queen and companion for Xerxes ought to be based entirely on beauty. So the choice would include all the eligible girls from all ethnic groups, all social levels in the entire Persian Empire. Now it seemed obvious to the advisors that beauty was the issue because Vashti's beauty 
was behind the inebriated king breaking with all protocol and court etiquette by wanting to show her off to his equally drunk officials and male guests. She was the Breeders' Cup winner of trophy wives to Xerxes. And little more. Yet I suspect that she was also rather charming and had worked her way into her husband's heart more than he had realized until she was gone. It's interesting that just as exaggerated and overzealous was the immediate reaction to Vashti refusing to come to the king, that is making it a national issue and decreeing a new law as a result of it. So the king's advisors once again take this exaggerated approach by flinging the doors open to all virgin females from the entire Persian empire as wife candidates for the king. The contestants would be brought from the 127 districts that made part uh, and some of these would be made part of the harem that was in Shushan, Susa. There they would be put under the supervision of a fellow named Haggai. He was the man that was in charge of the royal harem and he would prepare them for the coming beauty show. Now first let me point out There are no Greek additions to the Hebrew version of this chapter. What we read at the beginning is all there is. Verse 5 now shifts course and it introduces us to the two heroes of our story, Esther and Mordecai. Now it's interesting that Mordecai is called a Jew because it highlights something that we've discussed on numerous occasions. But to get there, we first have to notice that a brief genealogy is, is, is given for him and understand what it's telling us, what it's not telling us. It says that he is the son of Yair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, who was of the tribe of Benjamin. Now technically, a Jew is a person from the tribe of Judah, But Mordecai, we find out, is a Benjamite. So this is further evidence that much of the tribe of Benjamin had thrown in with the tribe of Judah well before Nebuchadnezzar had attacked Jerusalem and exiled the people of the land. However, by the time Judah and Benjamin together formed what's called a Jew, and it will remain so throughout the rest of the Bible. So, just like Paul in the New Testament, even though on the one hand Mordecai saw himself as a Jew, as part of Judah, on the other hand, he didn't forget his actual Israelite family heritage was originally of the tribe of Benjamin. Now, a person can immigrate from Kenya or Russia or Germany or Mexico to the USA and proudly call themselves an American. Yet, they will also usually retain an identity as a Kenyan, a Russian, a German, or a Mexican. So there's no conflict in this duality. But there's also something significant about Mordecai's genealogy. It proves that he came from King Saul's royal family line. And this just might turn out to be 
important to our story if we can understand this. We'll talk about more about that later. Now, to the untrained eye, it looks as though Jair was Mordecai's father, Shimei, his grandfather, Kish, his great-grandfather, but that would not be the case. Rather, Kish was Saul's father, head of the royal clan of Benjamin, and this Shimei was no doubt the same Shimei who had cursed David, King David, five centuries earlier as he was fleeing Jerusalem for his life as David's son Absalom was leading a coup against the king. Now this Jair might well have been Mordecai's actual biological father, maybe his grandfather, or perhaps some other earlier famous family patriarch. We just don't know. But all of these men were important, revered, leading men in the history of the tribe of Benjamin. Thus, we have to understand that biblical genealogies are not meant to be exhaustive. Let me say that again. This is important throughout the whole Bible. We have to understand that biblical genealogies aren't meant to be exhaustive. That is, they're not meant as some kind of precise step-by-step, generation-by-generation accounting of one's family tree. See, that's a Western mindset that usually gets read erroneously back into the Bible. Thus, even Yeshua's genealogy is not complete. And we know it skips generations. Even the long genealogies we see back in Genesis are incomplete. Generations are skipped. But on top of that, these either very brief genealogies, like with Mordecai's, or the very lengthy ones, like with Yeshua's, can each be intended to demonstrate something different. Yeshua's was to demonstrate that he was both of the tribe of Judah and that he was of King David's royal lineage because that was the firm requirement for anyone who claimed to be the Messiah. And while that is only mildly important to Gentile Christians, it's everything to Jews past and present. Now the purpose of Mordecai's genealogy is not so much to prove that he was a Benjamite but to prove that he was a Benjamite of aristocratic and royal line. This gave him special status in the eyes of the Jewish people. So, we see King Saul's father, Kish, is mentioned. Then we see Shimei, who was an aristocrat who deeply resented King David and the tribe of Judah, taking the kingship away from King Saul and the tribe of Benjamin. And we see Shimei being placed front and center. Thus, these two names were really all that was needed to establish Mordecai's credentials. The several generations in between were irrelevant, so they weren't listed. Now, verse 7 explains that Esther was Mordecai's uncle's daughter. That is, Esther was of blood relation as Mordecai's first cousin. But obviously there was a a large age difference between the two of them. And Esther was in Mordecai's charge because her parents were dead. And since any respectable unmarried Hebrew girl, a virgin, had to be under the supervision of a male family member, she was under Mordecai's authority. In fact, whether it was formal or informal, we're told that Mordecai had adopted Esther as a daughter. Now, 
she wasn't just pretty. We're told she was also shapely. She was Jewish eye candy to the max. Now, knowing what King Xerxes was looking for in a new wife, it's easy to see the trouble starting to brew already. Well, backing up a little bit, we have a bit of difficulty here because the passage seems to say that Mordecai was part of the group of Jews that was hauled off to Babylon by Nebuchadnezzar when he attacked and overthrew the Jewish king Jeconia, or we better know him as Jehoiachin. And the problem is that this occurred in 586 BC. And since the Esther story is occurring around 480 BC, some quick math says that if Mordecai was even only one year old at the time of Nebuchadnezzar's attack, then he'd be at least 107 years old at this time. Now, while that isn't entirely out of the realm of possibility, considering what Mordecai did and and the outcome, it's simply not reasonable to think that this could be the case, and not even the rabbis believed it. So how can we reconcile this statement of how and when Mordecai originally came to Babylon with how it relates to his place in our Esther story? There have been several attempts by scholars, but all have substantial holes in them. Now, as it can be quite difficult in Hebrew to attach a certain noun to a certain uh, pronoun or even a verb, when multiple people are involved in a single sentence, the he had been exiled from Jerusalem is where we have to look. Is the he in that sentence Mordecai, as it certainly seems to be, or... Might it be Jair? How about Shimei? See, I think the best solution is to look at the he as either Jair or more probably as Mordecai's general family line. That is, perhaps it was Jair or some other previous family member who was exiled and then Mordecai was born in Babylon. You know, tribes and families are always called he. In other words, a masculine pronoun And they're called that way in the Bible because the name of a tribe or a clan or a family always comes from the the patriarch, that is the male founder. About the only other alternative for us is to take an otherwise historically pretty accurate story and accuse the anonymous author of making some gross error by saying that Mordecai came to Babylon over a century earlier. That would have been just as unbelievable to the Jews of ancient times as it is to us. Because these Jews well understood who Kish and Shimei were. Of course they knew when Nebuchadnezzar had taken Jerusalem. So now let's tackle the meaning of the names Esther and Mordecai. Now Esther is a Babylonian name. And it is the same name as the Babylon Babylonian fertility goddess Ishtar. Naming children for their national gods and goddesses was usual. It was customary in the pagan world. Just as adding Yah, God, or Yehovah to a person's name was usual among the Israelites. But we'll also find that in Babylon and Persia and later Greece and finally Rome, it was usual for diaspora Jews to have 
two names. One of the local language and culture and the other one in Hebrew. Esther's Hebrew name was Hadassah. It means myrtle. And again we see St. Paul do this in the New Testament. His Hebrew name was Shaul, Saul. He was of the tribe of Benjamin and Shaul, King Saul, was of course a famous family name. But in Greek he was Paulus or in English just Paul. Now we don't get Mordecai's Babylonian name, but there is little doubt that it was Marduka. In fact, Mordecai doesn't really have an identifiable meaning like Hebrew names usually do, although there's been some vain attempts to try to provide one. Thus it seems as though Mordecai was only a Jewish vocalization of a Babylonian name, and that Babylonian name was Marduka, which means that Mordecai is not a true Hebrew name at all. And Marduka is a play on the Babylonian's chief god's name, Marduk. So here we have another very unsettling aspect to our story that caused a lot of debate from time immemorial as to whether this book even belonged in the Bible. Esther is named after the fertility goddess Ishtar. Mordecai is named after the god Marduk. The rabbis just about couldn't stand it. Well, now that we have the setting and we have most of the main characters introduced, the story starts to pick up steam. Verse 8 says that Esther was brought to the king's harem along with many other virgin girls and she was placed under the care of the king's harem keeper, Haggai. And by the way, pay attention to this place. There is no hint of violence. There's no kidnapping of Esther or any of the other girls for that matter, as most films on this subject portray it. Many virgin girls and their families would not have welcomed this. No doubt the younger ones especially would have been reluctant, even maybe fearful, to leave their parents' home. But at least as many, many would have been honored and ready to go at the urging of their families. Look, look, ladies, don't look at this through modern Western eyes. This was 2,500 years ago in the Middle East. You might see this as kidnapping, but they certainly wouldn't have. Marriages back then were arranged by fathers. Usually it was based on economics. The outcome of a marriage needed to benefit the family. These girls and their families, they all knew why they were going to Susa. It was written into the royal decree. They weren't going to be mistreated, they weren't going to be harmed, they weren't going to be slaves. One of these girls, one of them, was going to win the lottery and become queen of Persia. Queen of the world. Not so bad. And the queen's family would soon join her in the lap of luxury. They'd hobnob with the highest levels of Persian aristocracy. I mean, we simply don't hear of Esther's or any other girl's resistance. I mean, if there had been, you can bet that this storyteller would have included it to add an even larger element of drama to the story. Well, Esther quickly impressed Haggai, and so she was shown special favor. She was given the best food, 
all the expensive cosmetics that apparently many of the other girls didn't receive. In fact, seven girls were assigned to be her personal attendants, and she was given a top-tier place in that harem. Now, please note something. The number seven appears again. Now, we've discussed it back in chapter one, and we see a series of sevens develop in this story of Esther. And we've long since learned that seven is the ideal biblical number, and it usually indicates the Lord's direct hand in something. And that's exactly how we ought to take it here. Now, verse 10 tells us something peculiar. Esther didn't disclose to Haggai that she was Jewish. And that was because her adoptive father, Mordecai, told her not to. Why? Well, we're not told. In the man's world of Persia, if a father told his daughter to keep quiet about something, the why of it didn't matter. Was Esther therefore being deceptive by keeping her Jewish identity secret? There's no hint that her ethnicity was even inquired about. See, this is used by some scholars to say that such a thing disqualifies the story as real or or historical because it's just not believable that she could even keep her ethnicity secret. See, I, I, I find that absurd. Persia was a melting pot of cultures as evidenced from the many languages spoken there and the fact that the empire stretched from modern Pakistan to Europe, from the Black Sea to Egypt, from Ethiopia and much of North Africa. And the decree ordered an empire-wide search for the most beautiful of the women. And by definition, the search was racially and ethically, uh, rather ethnically, neutral. There would have been a number of Semitic cultures that were nearly indistinguishable from one another among all the other non-Semitic ones. Esther's Jewishness, well, it simply was not an issue to the king or to the royal court. So, why Mordecai's instruction to say nothing of it? Well, I can really only think of one reason. Whatever unspoken negative that might have existed for being a Hebrew, although there's none that's mentioned, It needed to be kept quiet because Mordecai hoped Esther would outdo the other contestants and become the queen. And then once she was, she would be in a position to advance her family and her people. And this was just par for the course among royalty. Which once again lends evidence to my conclusion that while Esther may not have personally wanted to go into the king's harem, Mordecai understood there would be some great benefits derived from it. Little did he know just how great, how important his hope for Esther to be chosen as Queen of Persia might be for the survival of the Jewish people in the Persian Empire. We'll continue with this story in chapter 2 next time.